and welcome to the CROCcast, Peace Studies Conversations convened by the Croc Institute for International Peace Studies at the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. I'm David Courtright, Professor Emeritus at the Croc Institute, and I'm also the editor of the Croc Institute's Peace Policy publication. Our latest issue features a set of reflections on this 20th anniversary of the terrorist attacks of 9-11. And the bitter irony of the recent Taliban takeover of Afghanistan makes this discussion and reevaluation of U.S. and global counterterrorism policy more urgent than ever. I'm joined today by the authors of the essays in our current issue of Peace Policy. Alistair Miller is president of the Fourth Freedom Forum and an adjunct professor at the George Washington University in Washington, DC. He co-founded and directed for many years the Global Center on Cooperative Security. Lisa Shirk is the Richard G. Starman Visiting Professorship Chair in Peace Studies at the Crack Institute and a senior research fellow at the Toda Institute. She is the author of 10 books, including editor of the recently released volume, The Ecology of Violent Extremism, Perspectives in Peacebuilding and Human Security. And also joining us is Noreen Chowdhury Fink, who is the Executive Director of the SOFAN Center. She previously served as a Senior Policy Advisor on Counterterrorism and Sanctions for the UK Mission to the United Nations, and has been a Policy Specialist with UN Women and the UN Counterterrorism Executive Directorate, focusing on gender and counterterrorism issues. Let me begin with you, Alistair. In the essay that we co-authored together in the current issue, we talked about the costs and consequences of militarized counterterrorism policy and also outlined some of the principles and strategies for a more effective approach to countering violent extremism. What's your perspective on what we wrote there and on those lessons? now in light of what's happened in Afghanistan? Well, I think it hits home, David, the central point that we were making in the article in, that we wrote together, that we overreacted after 9-11 with a military response, which was very, very costly. It went after the symptoms rather than the causes of the problem of violent extremism. And it failed to marshal all of the necessary stakeholders that would be required to prevent terrorism from happening in the first place and then maintaining it to ensure those who have become recruited can perhaps find a pathway back into the mainstream of society. A lot of money has been spent, as we have mentioned, trillions of dollars on a global war on terrorism um, since 9-11. And we've seen after 20 years in Afghanistan, all of the training and military support that we paid a lot for and gave to the Afghans themselves did little to stop the Taliban from coming back in full force and overtaking the country in around 11 days. We should also remember it's not just Afghanistan. There are terrible incidents of terrorism that are occurring. For example, just last week in Burkina Faso, uh, in the north of the country, there was a terrible attack by the Islamic State of the Greater Sahara. You've got various different groups competing with each other all over the world for territory as terrorist groups, ISIL or ISIS as it's called, the Islamic State, and then Al-Qaeda and others. So it really does beg the question as to whether 
all of this money that has been spent over the last 20 years in a global war of ter on terrorism and then the aftermath of a continued military campaign has been successful or even worse, has not been successful and encouraged other groups uh, to become more emboldened in response to overbearing military tactics rather than a more holistic civilian approach. So what's the alternative? What should have been done in terms of your own work, having been closely involved with the UN and many member states around the world that have tried to do the counterterrorism work in a non-military manner? What, what are some of the basic ideas there and how could we have done it better? Well, we've learned a lot over the last 20 years, and we've learned a lot from lots of other disciplines. Those who've worked on issues such as gang violence and other forms of recruitment towards extremist causes has taught us that you have to be multifaceted in your approach. It's a little bit like highway safety. The silver bullet is not there. You can't just, with one single policy, for example, police enforcement at speeding, encourage highway safety. You have to have speed limits. You have to have safe roads. You have to involve the community in understanding how to cross the road carefully with children, all sorts of things. And that just sort of gives an analogy, I think, to what we've learned about preventing as well as countering terrorism. We've got to be multidimensional in our, in our approach. We've got to work with a wide array of actors. As I mentioned a moment ago, that, that group, the Islamic State in the Greater Sahara, spans three countries, Burkina Faso, Mali, and Niger. So this isn't just a single country issue, it's transnational in nature, and therefore requires the support of lots of countries, and the UN is the ideal forum for countries to work together. But it also requires a really inclusive approach, where you have governmental and non-governmental actors working together on a variety of different issues, many of them, most of them, non-military in nature, to build community resistance and that sort of thing. And I think these are the lessons that we've learned is that we don't need to overreact and go in with an overwhelming use of force. It's a developmental and a governance issue that requires patience and care and not the expectation of a very, very quick result. Thank you. Uh, Lisa, you've spent a considerable amount of time in Afghanistan and Pakistan, engaged with some of the community representatives there with the women in Afghanistan. And in your essay, you write a lot about peace-building approaches that need to be employed in dealing with the problem of violent extremism. Tell us more about your experiences and what you learned about contributions that peace-building can make. Sure. Thanks for this invitation. So, you know, I think sometimes we think of Afghanistan as some far-off country with unique problems. But what I see from my time in Afghanistan is that the problem of violent extremism there is actually very similar to the problem of violent extremism in our own country. And what I saw in Afghanistan is a lot of very innovative civil society groups who had a lot of capacity actually for thinking through the very diverse reasons the Taliban appealed to people and why people were joining it. One of the chief reasons was a perception of government corruption, which, you know, I think the international community will need to talk a lot more about because as the huge amount of funds went into the country, not only for the military forces, but uh, for international development, there was a sense of it was just pouring water on a rock, just way too much money, and it ended up really fueling corruption. 
But I think we can look at the frustration of right-wing militias today, and, and they also point at government corruption. Sometimes it, it's unfair or exaggerated, but this perception that government isn't responsive is a common theme across extremists and insurgents in, in a variety of countries. And I think the main thing I learned from Afghanistan is that, you know, we treated it as violent extremism as some exceptional or different form of violence when actually what we need to do is think of violent extremism and terrorism as actually sharing a lot of the same causes, everything from mental health to individual dire economic circumstances to actual political grievances paired with a religious narrative, uh, sort of this diverse set of drivers of violent extremism, whether it's in Afghanistan or here in the United States, can be addressed with, as Alistair noted, a really diverse approach that you know we call local peace building, where local civil society groups are really offering to be that front line of engaging on everything from mental health issues to economic issues to channeling political grievances into effective social movements. Okay, thank you. Noreen, you're a specialist in gender issues, and certainly when we think about civil society and in the discussion today about the consequences of the Taliban takeover in Afghanistan, the fate of women and the role of women's groups is really at the top of the agenda. Tell us more about how the role of women in peace and security has evolved in recent years and its particular relevance to the challenge of preventing violent extremism and in, and in Afghanistan specifically. Sure. And thanks, David, for also inviting me to contribute the piece. It was really great to be back collaborating with you and Alistair. On this question, it's really interesting because, you know, as we know, for almost the first 10, 12 years that the UN was talking about counterterrorism in the wake of the 9-11 attacks, the question of gender was sort of on nobody's lips. And we know academically there's a lot of great scholarship, of course, on the roles of women in terrorism, war, in violence. But from a policy perspective, there was almost zero visibility of gender as an issue. And it's really interesting to me to see that in many cases, it was terrorist groups or violent groups themselves that have been in a way out front in integrating a gender dimension. And when I say you know, integrating a gender dimension, I'm not just talking about the role of women as a kind of singular role, right? I'm talking about a recognition of the full spectrum of roles women play, whether it's perpetrator, ideologue, supporter, victim, perpetrator. And of course, we've seen in many instances, these roles overlap. So that complexity was really not recognized by a policy community, which I'm afraid to say until fairly recently, you know, you'd still find UN reports that talk about the role of women and have this kind of inherent assumption of women as victims and, and passive agents. But beyond the multiple roles that women have played in relation to terrorism, I think when we talk about integrating a gender dimension, we're also talking about the narratives and objectives of terrorist groups themselves, which are heavily gendered. And not just in terms of how they think about women, how they think about the roles of men. We saw ISIS, you know, was very successful in reaching out to young Western men with the lure of, you know, war, uh, with the lure of kind of riches, of sexual slaves, and kind of 
leveraging a very toxic vision of masculinity to lure fighters out there. Same with the women, the narratives were very much premised on stereotypical notions of femininity. So I think it's been, you know, from like an operational perspective, from a conceptual perspective, we've really just sort of, we're still at the thin end of the wedge in how we think about from a policy perspective, the roles of gender and terrorism. And in many ways, terrorist groups have been out front, you know, governments and international organizations move a bit slower. But we saw, for example, ISIS out front recruiting women. We've seen the Taliban, you know, among the first actions they've taken are to shut down women's access, women's faces, literally being erased from the walls of Kabul. And so they very, very quickly recognize the potency of a gendered approach. And so I think it's really important when we think about counterterrorism, countering violent extremism, and the whole range of actions and stakeholders that you and Alistair have highlighted, that we think about a gender dimension in each of these. You know, for too long, I've been seeing the discussion on the roles of women or gender relegated to the quote unquote soft side of counterterrorism and security discussions. But we all know that there's a gendered element to the hard side of it too, whether it's intelligence, law enforcement, security. And yet we see the bulk of kind of CVE or CT money A, it goes to law enforcement, military type programming, and within that there's very little attention to the gender dimension. So I think it's on us really to try and take the words in Resolution 2242 forward. And Afghanistan is really a prime example for people who say that gender and counterterrorism isn't really a, a critical issue. Well, the Taliban have made very clear to us that it is. ISIS made very clear to us that it is. And sadly, the women themselves and, and many of the young men have made clear that it is a very key part of counterterrorism that we need to think about throughout the whole you know, panoply of approaches we take. Yes, thank you. Uh, could you explain just a bit for our listeners uh, what the Security Council resolution encompasses? Sure. We do get very used to our jargon and numbers in the UN world. Sorry about that. In 2015, the Security Council adopted Resolution 2242, which is notable for many reasons, but for, for the purposes we're discussing today, it mandates an integration of the women, peace and security agenda and the counterterrorism agenda across sort of the full spectrum of work. And I think that's very important because in terms of counterterrorism, it includes the CVE, PVE discussion. However, most of, as I said before, most references to women, peace and security had only been limited to preventive engagement. Security Council Resolution 2242 brought together the two agendas. And of course, it's for, for different implementers to interpret what best suits their work, but it created the political space, the institutional bridge between entities like UN Women, CTED, the Counterterrorism Executive Directorate, and a number of civil society actors who now found that their voices could be heard in counterterrorism spaces, which they hadn't been before. Yeah, very interesting. I wanted to take your concept of a broader perspective on gendered approaches, maybe and ask Alistair and, and Lisa to comment as well. It seems to me that that's a, an important contribution you make, that it's also this warped conception of masculinity, a kind of a super macho male mentality that's common for those of us who've been in the military. It's part of the training and conditioning and 
And it was part of the mentality that led the United States after the terrorist attacks of 9-11 to think about war as the immediate response, you know, to give in to the temptation for vengeance and violence and to fight as the immediate response. And I wonder if uh, Alistair or, or Lisa, if you see that as well. And, and one of the reasons why the often more effective and certainly less violent and destructive approaches of peace building or multilateral cooperation were not the selection. And instead, it, it was the selection of violence and the so-called hard military approach that was adopted by the U.S. right after 9-11. Alistair? Yeah, well, certainly, I mean, if you look at the actors involved and those who were the sort of architects of the global war on terrorism, you can only say perhaps that Condoleezza Rice, I think, was the only female amongst the whole bunch. What we've seen empirically in other situations is if you have women in police forces, for example, and they go, they're on a, in a patrol and there is a, a certain intervention that needs to be made, their approach very often is more useful than just the male macho approach. Perhaps things can be de-escalated, perhaps a different perspective can be taken on the situation. And I, I think, unfortunately, that is what happened with the policymaking that went into the global war on terrorism. It was a very, very male-focused, aggressive pursuit of a policy that dates back to time immemorial where it's, you know, the response has to be macho warlike responses. So I think that's that's very, very important. So what can we do about it? We're in this podcast uh, hosted by an academic institution. I think there really needs to be a lot more focus on the role that, that women and girls can play all the way through this sort of rethinking policy that we're describing. And that can mean having more women as role models from the counterterrorism world come to the University of Notre Dame and show that they are active and have a place in here, in this space. That is growing a little bit. It's mainly been dominated by men. But I think doing what Noreen has, has described as well is so important, and that is to ensure that the breadth of that dimension of gender is really looked at carefully and not just given a sort of token inclusion in a conversation. Yeah, Lisa, your thoughts on that? I'd like to take a bit of a broader perspective. So over the last 20 years since 9-11, we've learned many things. There's been lots and lots of research about violent extremism. And some of the pieces that I think are, are really the most fruitful for thinking about going forward, where I think we're all looking at a future where there's likely to be more violent extremism, not less. And that's because of really this mass transition the world is in right now with mass migration, climate catastrophes, economic disasters, these kinds of, uh, you know, mega mass trends affect people in different ways. And people find different outlets for expressing their frustration and grievances. And unfortunately, Hollywood and media, you know, kind of reinforces for many young men that taking up the gun and, and creating a very simple patriarchal hierarchical worldview is a way of dealing with a sense of not having a place in the world or not knowing how one fits in. And so like it's, it's a bit of a gender perspective, but it's also a psychological perspective and it looks at how, you know, in the years ahead, well, as we've seen here in the United States, the, the tremendous growth of white supremacist militias with young white American men picking up a gun 
and believing this is the only way of changing things or addressing things and, and really taking a very strict patriarchal view of the world where, you know, this kind of strong man approach is how, how you solve problems. The response to that, you know, yes, okay, maybe there's a role for policing and finding out and intelligence has actually done an incredible job over the last 20 years of finding people before they commit acts of terrorism, but really trying to prevent this requires this multidimensional peace building response, which really looks at everything from community psychology, which is now happening in African countries are leading the way, Liberia and Zimbabwe, in thinking about how to mainstream mental health for people who are having a difficult time with transitions and new identities and new narratives. And I think that, you know, the more we can channel people to nonviolent social movements, to express their grievances. And if Hollywood can be supporting this, you know, really effective, sustainable change happens when people power works together to address problems like climate change, like migration, like, like many of the major issues facing the world today. I think this is what a peace building response really requires, not for us to sort of isolate violent extremism and terrorism as a separate problem, but as actually a manifestation of a combination of critical issues facing the world today. Yes, and one of those tools of peace building is a dialogue, strategic dialogue, where the parties in conflict try to have a conversation. If it's difficult for them, then there are mediators and supporters who come in and try to facilitate or be the go-between. And I wonder if we, as we think about the, the crises of today and in Afghanistan and beyond, how can that dimension of dialogue and mediation of negotiation, how can that be strengthened so that parties that have conflicts can try to work out their differences without resorting to violence. I'll take a stab at that as well. I think the most successful organizations working to reintegrate violent extremist individuals and groups are those who use dialogue and engage with respect for people who had gone down the violent extremist approach and, and had embraced that. And it was tempting for many years for American diplomats to say we're not negotiating with the Taliban, but that was the biggest mistake, actually, uh, looking back at it all. There were many openings for more productive dialogue along the lines, but sort of this absolutist sort of cancel culture, win-lose framework makes it really difficult to end violent extremism, transform it, or change it in any way. The refusal to dialogue it feels like a punishment, perhaps, but it's actually you know, it destines us to failure. So I think one of the things that we have to learn also from Afghanistan is we have to keep talking to each other and there's not an easy way. There's not a military solution. We've learned that absolutely through all of this. And so the messy conversation that happens between people with very different ideas, you have to find ways of doing that. Oftentimes, violent extremist groups don't want to have any dialogue, but at least their leaders don't, but their lower level members will and do, and they have families that can have dialogue with them. And so often it's actually the kitchen table, where is the dialogue space for families to talk with their sons and maybe their daughters who have a sense of interest in a violent extremist ideology. So 
dialogue really is the front lines of preventing and then reintegrating people who have uh, experienced violent extremism. Yes, you, you so often hear, well, we can't have dialogue with, with extremists or with those who are uh, insurgents, but that's precisely who you need to have dialogue with. And that's how all peace agreements ultimately end up emerging is when you start those conversations. Let's also talk about the question of governance and, and how to overcome corruption and unresponsive political systems. And I, you mentioned uh, earlier the, the role of law enforcement and intelligence. And we know from the record that uh, good law enforcement, that is to say law enforcement that's related and connected to the communities where people trust the police officers and are willing to share information, that those kinds of dynamics have been responsible for intercepting and preventing many different violent attacks and plots in many countries in multiple settings. How do we try to build more understanding and greater effort on addressing this question of more responsive, more accountable governance that's able to have the trust and is seen as legitimate by local communities? Alistair? Yes, this trust deficit was, of course, exacerbated by the global war on terrorism in the sense that security should trump all else. And we know that at the community level, relationships between local governments and the, the people that they serve are absolutely necessary to create a resilient community that can recognize um, where there are signs of people becoming radicalized perhaps recruited. And if, for example, in the city of St. Paul, Minnesota, in the United States, there's a large Somali population. And we had a situation maybe 10, 15 years ago where Somalis were concerned that some of the children in the community were being recruited to Al-Shabaab. But it was quickly found out that the police had been planting people in their community as intelligence officers. And that greatly upset the Somalis. And therefore, they didn't feel that they could go to the police and register their concerns about this radicalization. So with that trust deficit there, you have a complete breakdown of the necessary communication that is needed and the partnership that is needed between the community and the local government institutions, whether it be the police, whether it be healthcare, you name it. They have to have that conduit where they can work together as partners. That is really the underlying premise of what we're suggesting needs to be changed, going from a global war on terrorism and a muscular sort of military and heavy police intelligence response to something that allows the use of intelligence to be more useful because people from the community trust local law enforcement. If I could just jump in on that, David, if I might. I think that's really important, um, what Alistair mentioned, and I think we have some interesting positive examples that maybe we can think about building on and scaling up in different places. You know, coming back to the question of gender and CT and things like that, I took a lot of heart from a lot of the positive responses to female peacekeepers and a lot of the lessons that have been learned from how communities have engaged with contingents of female peacekeepers and the success rate kind of in building um, stronger relationships with communities. And I know the 
that there's been quite a lot of discussion on how and where one can scale that up in peacekeeping. But I think that has important lessons for some of the issues that Alistair mentioned in terms of learning to build trust between communities and police officers. I know we've certainly seen that in the military as well. But I think there's also, you know, we've been talking about Afghanistan, so that just comes to mind, but it's in a lot of places. There's also a little more investment we need to do, I think, in understanding different contexts. We tend, I've heard from several different police officers in different countries, you know, the same problem would be addressed 10 different ways in 10 different countries, probably 300 different ways in 10 different countries, actually, given unique cultural contexts. And that's a really important element of building trust and understanding where you can keep relationships going right? Because that's what they need. So I think we also need to talk about a bit more investments in cultural competency in understanding the communities where, um, you know, police and law enforcement forces are going in. There's so many mistakes we've heard about that, you know, not necessarily bad faith on either part, just not understanding where you're going in and how you're seen. And certainly we've seen that on mass scale in Afghanistan and Iraq. David, if I may, I, I just would like to point out another best practice, which is really important, but has seems to be overlooked, particularly in the context of the aftermath of so many of these brutal police killings in this country. And that is that, you know, in the case of Northern Ireland, where there was deep and destructive sectarian violence for many, many decades, the Good Friday Agreement that helped to settle some of the disputes and, and bring in the political wing of the Irish Republican Army, Sinn Féin, into government required that there be a wholesale revamping, actually just a complete reset of their police force. It went from being the Ulster Constabulary Police Force into the Northern Ireland Police Service, so turning it from a force into a service. And it required that there be a lot more parity between people from the different sects, Catholic and Protestant in this regard. And I think it's an important lesson to show that you can diffuse tensions and build trust with the community if you don't get rid of policing altogether. Really think about revamping it to ensure that it's a lot more inclusive and in line with many of the things that Lisa Noreen, you and I have been discussing here. I remember at a conference speaking once with one of the senior officers of Scotland Yard about a successful interdiction of a terrorist plot in England back, uh, I think, 2005, 2006. And I asked him, well, how did you find out about this? And what was the key to your success? And he said it was the the bobbies on the block, (laughs) the police officers walking in some of the immigrant communities in Northern England who were part of the community, who were trusted by the community, who walked the streets and got to know the neighbors and learned from some of the community people that there were some radical young men at the mosque who ought to be uh, watched and they were very dangerous and and through step by step they managed to find out that they were indeed involved in a uh, a violent plot. This notion of policing that's attuned to the community and also is understanding of the culture the language that is as much as possible from the community that it's supposed to be serving. These are some core principles that we've known about for a long time, but we so seldom practice them. And that's the case in terms of international efforts, as well as in our own communities, where you have police forces that don't know or understand the communities they're trying to serve. It's a key dimension. 
On this question of culture and language, too, it, it strikes me that a fundamental problem with the U.S. policy in particular is uh, this arrogance that leads us to believe we can go to a place like Afghanistan and have almost no one in the service of the U.S. government who speaks the language and very few have ever been there for any extended period of time and understanding the cultures. And then the tribal dynamics that exist within these societies. So apparently in, in Afghanistan, that was a key factor in the way in which the Taliban was able to take power. They didn't necessarily shoot their way into Kabul. They negotiated their way in by working in relationship to some of these dynamics within the communities. I wonder, Lisa, if you encountered that in your time in Afghanistan and how you navigated those kinds of dynamics as you were trying to work with local communities. Well, certainly one of the largest failures of the war in Afghanistan was the lack of capacity of the international forces to understand culture and religion and local economic systems and political histories and gender, you name it. I sat in many of the training courses where you know, the military was teaching cultural competence and you just can't learn it in an hour or two. There was so much talk at the International Security Assistance Force in Kabul about the lack of local capacity of the civil society leaders that I was working with who were taking this peace-building approach to thinking about the Taliban. But what I saw was that the local leaders not only have master's degree, many from the Western universities, they were, they were highly qualified intellectuals, and they had all those capacities that I just mentioned, language, religion, culture, political history, economic history. They were able to function. They had relationships. Many had cousins in the Taliban, cousins in the government. They were the perfect mediators, but they were almost entirely excluded from the official peace process or peace talks. And they were really treated as military contractors. You know, West, people in Western capitals would come up with ideas and then look for an implementing partner, which was a term that I was trying to fight in Washington. You, you can't see these people as contractors. It's their country. They have the capacities. And we should be listening to them about what could possibly work rather than telling them our ideas of what we think would work because there was just so much wasted money and wasted effort by this cultural arrogance, this refusal to really actually listen to what local people were saying and advising. And really, you know, it was a colonial attitude that only sort of white people could function and the government needed to look like our government. And yeah, it was a, a cultural catastrophe as much as a military catastrophe. Noreen, I wonder if you could comment on that if you've had experience in dealing with these dynamics of misunderstanding and underappreciating cultural, linguistic, religious dynamics in these communities. It's fairly pervasive everywhere. I mean, Iraq, Afghanistan, these are the big military environments that we can talk about. But I think, you know, we've seen that at every micro level, you have experts flown in for a week, some who know, some who don't know the region at all. You know, they don't understand the nuances and terminology and custom and everything. So I think that it's just we, the U.S., tends to be very bad at this across the board, whether it's on project implementation level or warfighting level, right? But I think what's been really interesting 
over the years is, and you know, Alistair and I have both been involved in this project in South Asia, where for, for a number of years, we worked with UN partners to bring together, for example, police officers from throughout South Asia for regular talks on how they manage counterterrorism risks. And I remember uh, one of the sessions, you know, where for several days we were talking about different gender issues. And it was really interesting, not for me to lead the session, but for them to speak to each other about, you know, within the same region where they do exchange knowledge, they have cross-border threats and cross-border operations, for them to talk about some of the unique kind of cultural, political issues that shaped how they can work with gender. You know, one country said, actually, we have an excess of women applying for police forces. And, you know, we get the motorcycles, it all works. Another country said, you know, we're desperate, we have money, we we call for them, it just, they won't come join the police. And, you know, that makes investigations very difficult. Anyway, my point was, the best thing about that conversation was that it barely involved me. It was just sort of my role to bring people together and let them speak. And I think to Lisa's point, I mean, I have some roots in South Asia, but I think those kinds of exercises are really valuable where we can use the the space we have, the resources we have to create a kind of safe environment, but let people from the region speak to the challenges they're dealing with and identify their best practices. Yes, Alistair, I wonder if you could help us sort of wrap up the conversation with some final observations and what are the, the big lessons that we in the United States should be learning now. I mean, it's a big question, but after the debacle in Afghanistan and in terms of the failures of the attempts to prevent terrorism around the world, what are some of the big ideas or the big direction that we ought to be taking to overcome those problems? Well, I think having this conversation just right after the Taliban were able to run roughshod in such a short period of time after a 20-year military engagement costing so much money, it, it really shows us and really should teach everybody in government in particular who makes these policies that this is not the right approach. If we had taken a peace-building approach with the Taliban, if we had done what so many scholars have uncovered over the years to say that if you negotiate with and work with some of these groups, they're able to soften their approach. And it's a win-win situation. It's difficult to do. You've seen it in Colombia and elsewhere, but it can be done. So I think the the three takeaways I would bring from this conversation and and from the, the pieces that we've written is first, the evidence base has to be much, much stronger. We're going into these conflicts. We're making proclamations at the UN about what we should do about certain terrorist groups without drawing on the knowledge of local people. In Washington here, there's so many experts who, if you look at the sources in their papers that they write, they're all Western. There's nobody being consulted from the local area. So the evidence has to be inclusive. The approach has to be inclusive. So you're involving lots and lots of stakeholders. And the recalibration, constant recalibration of what you're doing needs to be inclusive too, so that you get feedback from the field to say, hey, this is working, or maybe this isn't working. Sure would have been nice to have done that, let's say, 15 years ago in Afghanistan. Lisa, what are your concluding thoughts and big ideas for moving forward and learning the lessons? Well, I think, as I said earlier, I think the future holds more violent extremism. 
And I think we need to treat it much more like we treat other forms of social violence because they all sort of have the same root causes. And so I think the community needs to be in the lead. We need to be listening to diverse community leaders, religious leaders, community influencers, women's leaders, sports leaders, sort of everybody has a role in addressing extremism. And my work now is focused much more on the United States as I try to learn the lessons from Afghanistan and apply them here to thinking about what does this country need to do to prevent more January 6th insurgent kind of activity that we're seeing in this country. Noreen, your final thoughts, observations? Tough facts to follow. (laughs) I think that Primarily, I I agree with Lisa, we are going to see more violent extremism and terrorism. And none of us, uh, certainly many of my colleagues at the Sufan Center, don't think that the, the terrorism challenge in South Asia and Central Asia is going to get less. So my main takeaway is that we please try and learn the lessons of the last 20 years and act on them. You know, we've identified a lot of things that don't work. We shouldn't be afraid to say it didn't work let's try something different and where we have learned lessons you know let it not become a box ticking exercise where we now know we need to talk about gender so every conference includes the word gender somewhere on the agenda and it's done let's actually make sure that we've learned these lessons and we absorb them into our approaches going forward yeah i think we we need an entirely different paradigm for thinking about international security and addressing the problems of terrorism and violent extremism. And as you've all three said, shifting away from this overly militarized approach, listening to the people in these communities, understanding the cultural, religious, and other dynamics on the ground, and adopting a whole of society, whole of government approach that addresses all of the factors that lead to violence, not just taking a military approach. So thanks to each of you for joining our conversation today and for your contributions to the issue of peace policy. And for those listening, if you wouldn't wish to get more information, uh, I urge you to go to the Crock Institute website and look at the next issue of peacepolicy.nd.edu. Thank you for listening. Thanks, David. Bye. Thanks, y'all. Thank you. You've been listening to the CrocCast. Peace Studies Conversations convened by the University of Notre Dame's Kroc Institute for International Peace Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs. You can find all episodes of the CrocCast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify, and online at croc.nd.edu slash podcast. You can also rate and review our podcast, which will help more people find our show. For more updates, stories, and videos from the Kroc Institute, follow us online on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Thanks for listening.